Welcome to our second evening prayer service. Here we go. Um, last week was so exciting, and it was such a privilege to be a part of leading it and seeing this fellowship grow. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Trip Gordon. I'm a minister here on staff. I came on staff just a few months ago, and a lot of what I've been doing is, is building up to, to this moment, building up to this congregation here these Sunday evenings. So it's such a joy to see this all come to fruition. I'm married to my wife, Allie. We just got a house here in Raleigh about a year ago. We lived in the area for a time and we're so excited to serve this community and this city. To get to know us, similar to Ty, we, we like to watch movies, particularly uh, funny movies and TV shows. You know, end of the day, we just we wanna laugh, uh, watch something lighthearted. Uh, recently, we turned on one of my favorites. I think it's one of the best movies of this generation. Uh, it's got a star-studded cast. It's got Academy Award winners. It's got incredible music. I am, of course, referring to 2001's Shrek. It's amazing. I'm always amazed how much that movie makes me laugh. It has incredible staying power two decades in now. And we laughed for an hour and a half or however long it was. It's incredible. It's great. Ogres being compared to onions or parfaits. Uh, donkeys falling in love with a girl dragon because of course you're a girl dragon. And an investigation scene, interrogation scene with the gingerbread man implicating the muffin man's wife. It's incredible. One of the main driving plots of Shrek is that the antagonist, Lord Farquaad, great name, wants to make his ideal kingdom. You might know the story by removing all the fairy tale creatures. You know, he huffed and he puffed and he signed an eviction notice and they had to go away. Only thing Farquaad doesn't realize is that he actually isn't king yet. And in classic fairy tale form, he has to marry the princess in order to become king, which then launches the plot. And Farquaad, you know, in his uh, diminutive uh, cowardice, so we could call him that. Uh, he refuses the task, and he has Shrek, the champion, the representative, do it for him. It's great, but admittedly, it's a little bit of a silly example. But what Shrek is parodying, you might not know this already, it's a, it's a common trope in fantasy, right? Where the would-be leader has to accomplish some heroic task. The, the mythic leader or hero has to do something. Think of uh, Beowulf or uh, Hercules in Greek mythology, or even more recently, the Marvel film Black Panther picks up on this as well. Heck, even if you grew up with uh, Monty Python, he has to do something like this, right? Those stories, the Holy Grail, gotta find it. What these tropes show us is that in these tasks that we demand or desire in our leaders, we want to know that this person, this king, this leader, whoever he is, that he's he's worth following, right? That they're worth following. They've accomplished some remarkable feat of strength or might and that we can trust that in following them, we will be safe. We will flourish under their rule of someone who has proven they are worth submitting to their leadership in some way, shape, or form. That their authority isn't going to be oppressive but worth submitting to. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has, has entered the scene and from the beginning of Mark's gospel, he's given this title of Christ, the Son of God. This title is reserved for its king language. It's the anointed king of Israel, the royal descendant of David, who will usher in this kingdom of God, which is where we left off last week, or that last verse before we get into our passage mentions, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Only he can say this because only a king can bring in a kingdom, right? The question remains, of course, is what kind of king is he? What about him would mean that I follow him? And what about his authority would require 
that I respond to that call, that I repent and believe the gospel? What about him would demand that we identify him as not only the king of Israel, but the Lord of my life? So, who is this king? That's the question we're gonna be asking this evening. Who is this king? And what makes him worth following? What makes him worth following? And by extension, perhaps a deeper question that we might not always ask is, what type of person might I become when I follow him? What type of people will we become when we follow him? As we walk through our passage, we're gonna see three snapshot scenes of Jesus's early ministry. Number one is gonna be the invitation where he calls us to something more. He calls us to something more. Then we're gonna move into a, a confrontation where he confronts our greatest enemy. And then lastly, in the restoration, he cleanses and restores us. He cleanses and restores us. So invitation, confrontation, restoration. He calls us into something more. He confronts our greatest enemy and he cleanses and restores us. So if you haven't already, please open with me to Mark 1. I'm gonna be looking here at verses 16 through 20. It's a lot of text tonight, so it'd be helpful if we walk through together. But first, under this first point, in this first scene of the invitation, in that he calls us to more. He calls us to something more. Looking with me at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. We remind ourselves briefly of what Jesus has just done in the first 15 verses of our gospel. He's launched his ministry, and he was baptized in the Jordan River, and the heavens are split open, and there's a voice of God who comes down and speaks to Jesus, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what God sounds like probably. Uh, he overcomes these tests from Satan in the wilderness and we arrive in Galilee saying the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near. Repent and believe the gospel. That's a lot, that's a lot, right? And it's pretty dramatic. So what does Jesus do next? What might we expect he would do next? He finds some fishermen, curious? An interesting choice to say the least, not exactly my first thought as to how a king should respond to this. Uh, you know, maybe he'll, he'll cast out some demons, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, he'll do the whole raising the people dead from the dead thing or he'll feed the 5,000, but no. He finds some fishermen by the Sea of Galilee and he says to them, follow me. The phrase literally means come after me. And he says, I will make you a fisher of men. This language of coming after someone is the language of discipleship or apprenticeship to a teacher or a leader of some type of rabbinic school at that time. In the Jewish world, you see students would seek out a rabbi to follow after, to learn the law, to learn the scriptures, to become the smart people in their community. But very rarely would the reverse happen. Would the teacher identify the students? So imagine with me for a second, you're doing your job, a job that is hard, but it's rewarding and it's important to your community. Your head is down, it's on the grind. And this guy called in Aramaic, Yeshua, comes up to you. This guy who we call Jesus walks up to you and asks you to be his apprentice, to come after him, to become a disciple. You of course wanna know the terms. What will this all entail? Can, can I still feed my family? How far away will I be from them? Am I, am I gonna die? <laughs> am I gonna die? This is a fair question. 
We don't see those questions here. The text communicates that immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. And the same with James and John. And here we see this paradigm. He calls and they follow. He calls and they follow. There is no delay. And why? Their story, you see, of fishing, business, commerce, family, etc., has now been caught up into this larger redemptive story that the Lord has been weaving together across time of the long-awaited king ushering in his kingdom. Jesus is able to call these men into the mission of that kingdom only because he has the authority to do so. Only a king can bring in a kingdom. He is the king himself. So inviting these men into something that all of their lives has now been building up towards. Have you ever felt this call before? This call of the Lord taking hold of your heart, this urgent response that he would call us into. And more than just that, the implications that that might have for your life. You see what these fishermen understood is that Jesus isn't just calling you to be a better person. He isn't just calling you to feel bad that you aren't going to church enough or that you're not spending enough of time in your quiet time. He's not calling you to feel bad that you're not evangelizing to your coworkers enough. He's calling you to more. He's calling you to follow him, to be a disciple. You are not simply a lawyer, an accountant, a nurse, a mom, a, fa a father, or a, a small business owner. God is calling you to more. He's calling all of us to more, to participate in this kingdom building project. The king was calling these four men to come after him and be a disciple and to make disciples. But objections, of course, may remain. They may have been in the heads of these men at the time. They may have been saying, or you yourself might be saying some form of, you, you don't understand. I, I've tried this whole Jesus thing before, but I just can't. This or that sin or you know, this community has a hold over me, has some sway over me, and I can't seem to find happiness in the church and in the community of the church like I can in these other friend groups at school, on my team, amongst my coworkers, or elsewhere. Or maybe you're saying to yourself, well, hey, I, I did some form of that back in the day when I was in youth group, now I'm in college, now it's time to live it up. Or maybe you're a little bit ahead of time and you're looking back and say, hey, I did that in college ministry, but hey, I got kids now. I got uh, bills to pay, I got work to do, I can't really follow, what does that even mean in the adult world? Life is just too busy. Or perhaps some of you may be saying, hey, well, I, I got all that, I, I was raised in a good conservative Christian family, right? I've got, I've got this figured out. Hey, that's not what Jesus is demanding of you in this passage. He is inviting you to follow him or on the other side of the political aisle, I've always stood for justice, the marginalized and the downtrodden. Surely I'm on the side of Jesus, on the side of God. God wouldn't ignore that. And as admirable as that may be, again, that is not what Jesus is describing here. He is inviting you to follow him, to come after him and be a disciple. What these four men grasp in this interaction with Jesus is that the call to discipleship focuses on the question of your life's ultimate loyalty. Will your life be marked by the hamster wheel cycle of going to college, trying so hard to get a boyfriend or girlfriend, hoping that one day you can have the fairy tale wedding and get married, buy a house, start a family, do your nine to five, pay your taxes, raise your children to jump in that hamster wheel itself, live the American dream, retire, and then go on that Viking River cruise or wherever else and live the good life. 
And he might be, those things aren't ter- all bad necessarily, but will it be marked by more than that? Will it be marked by more than that? Will it be marked by following Jesus and making disciples? The important thing to ask is not whether or not you are busy enough to follow him, but whether or not Jesus has the authority in your life to command your obedience. Does he have the authority in your life to command your obedience? If he is simply some philosopher or good moral teacher, you know, that might suffice for some season, high school, college, whenever. But if he is king, if he is Lord of your life, that invitation still remains for you in whatever season of life. He calls, will you follow? Perhaps questions still remain about this king and his authority, which leads us from invitation now into confrontation, into confrontation where Jesus confronts our greatest enemy. Jesus confronts our greatest enemy. Looking back at the text from verses 21 through 39, we get, in the day, we get a day in the life of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, particularly in the city of Capernaum. And hey, it's a pretty crazy day in the life. He teaches in the synagogue, he silences an unclean spirit, he heals a lot of people, he preaches, then he casts out more demons, and then he finds time to pray, and then he casts out more demons. Wild times. I taught a class this morning, I had to change battery in my car, then I watched some football. Now I'm here preaching again, but this is nothing compared to this. Uh, this passage introduces into the narrative something we uniquely find in Jesus' ministry is something that us modern folks have a little difficulty with, and that is the concept of demons or unclean spirits and the like in their interactions with Jesus. We read this, and I think we like to try to rationalize what's happening here. You know, Thomas Jefferson and his Life and Morals of Jesus, he wrote a a more rational biography of Jesus and removed all the references to demons and, and most references to the supernatural. Many today still try to understand demonic possession or, or whatever that is uh, as some form of uh, seizure, some form of mental or psychological illness or something that we now in the 21st century have a, a more accurate and scientific understanding of. But I think this neglects what the text is communicating here. If you look at with me at verse 32 and 34 mentions this as well, it mentions that there were those who were, it differentiates between those who were sick with various diseases and then those who were oppressed by demons. There's a differentiation happening here. And throughout the Bible, there are instances of angelic and demonic warfare happening throughout, but it's often subtle, often seen at a glance. And every now and then we're able to peek behind the curtain a little bit more to get a glimpse of what's going on in the spiritual unseen realm. But now that Jesus, the Holy One of God, as the unclean spirit says, is on the scene, the unseen realm now intersects with the seen realm. The gospels present to us a reality that when Jesus arrives on the scene, there is this hyper-intensification of spiritual warfare. The forces of darkness now aim their target on the Son of God that is on open display unlike anywhere else we see in scripture. You may be thinking, well, all that sounds a little weird to be honest. Uh, A little hocus pocus for me, we modern scientific people in the 21st century don't attribute behavior to to angels and and demons sitting on our shoulders anymore. We've moved past that. But I think the ancient world understood something that I think we still all know, and that is there are powers in this world. There There are forces, if you will. You know, there's something that stands behind love. There's something that stands behind money. There's something that stands behind power that if we aren't careful, Each of these things have the ability to control us, have the ability to shape us and turn us into something that we no longer recognize. 
You know, interestingly, if you think about the ancient world for a second, it was always those things, love, money, power, or something of that nature, where they attributed to some form of deity. And so whether you want to call them Aphrodite or Apollo or Hermes or Jesus mentions mammon in the New Testament or demons or whatever. To be clear, I'm not saying that these are actual gods. Paul will clarify this in 1 Corinthians 8 that they are so-called gods. But they have the ability here, along with our sin, they have this power to make us less human. They have the power to ruin us and to drive us to self-destruction, where love at one time was so fun and exciting and somebody was paying attention to us, now has the power to turn us into a, a toxic obsession where money was at one time productive and really cool to spend money on things, now it turns into a, a deep fear and a desperation. We no longer can recognize what we're doing with our money, where power was at one time an empowering responsibility, now it has turned into a means of oppression and violence. Our passage presents to us a world where these powers are now exposed and Jesus openly confronts them. And for our purpose, the key question here mainly is not what really happened, but what did this happening really mean? What was Mark trying to show here? Looking at the text again, this scene is bracketed by that word we've been talking about throughout, or some variation of it, and that is authority. Verse 22, he taught them as one who had authority. Verse 27, there was this new teaching with what? Authority. Verse 34, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. They knew who he was. They knew what he was doing, the authority that he had. And again, in verse 39, he continues to go into the synagogue preaching and casting out demons because of the authority that has been established here. And more than wrestling with just demonic powers, Jesus heals the sick. You may have noticed that, Simon's mother-in-law. People who are not necessarily sick with demons, I, I wouldn't want to communicate that. But what sickness does show us is that we still live in a world where Satan still has sway. We live in a fallen world with thorns and thistles where Satan still has power here. But Jesus confronts these powers of the fall because it's his authoritative teaching. Recognize this is happening in the synagogue where he's teaching that has the power to destroy the forces of darkness, to destroy our enemy, as one commentator puts it, not just one demon, but the whole demonic realm quakes in fear at the recognition that Jesus has come to conquer their, their realm and to rescue those enslaved by Satan. The inbreaking power of the kingdom of God will overwhelm the ramparts of Satan. He commands the demons to be silent and they flee. He touches Simon's mother-in-law's hand and she is healed. And throughout Jesus' engagement with the realities of a fallen world, there is this consistent paradigm again. He commands, they obey. He commands, they obey. Interestingly, because the text says they knew him. What Mark's gospel has made clear so far is that the kingdom only comes to those who understand two things. They can see their sin, and they can see Jesus for who he really is. That's why the text doesn't say the kingdom of God is here, so be a good person. And that's why it doesn't say believe in Jesus was a more good moral teacher. No, we are called to repent and believe the gospel. This is what the demons miss, right? They can see Jesus for who he is, the Holy One of God, but they don't see their sin. They don't see the need to repent or any, any need for that. And the question you can ask, we can all ask is, do you? Do you see these two things, who Jesus is, 
and our need for repentance. Maybe some of you definitely do, and I hope you hear there's this beautiful freedom on the other side of addiction, oppression, and the feeling that you have lost yourself to these things. For on the cross, Jesus did something that Paul will note in Colossians 2.15, that he disarms the rulers and authorities, and he puts them to open shame, triumphing over them. I love that language. He embarrasses them. He, he makes them look like fools. Our enemy has no power over us because of the cross, because God has looked the enemy straight in the face and said, you no longer have any power over her. You no longer have any power over him because I have disarmed any power you have in my body. I have put it to death on the cross and I have overcome it by rising from the dead. Our ultimate final enemy itself, suffering and death is also overcome. As it says in Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has mastery over him and if it no longer has mastery over him, it no longer has power over those who put their trust in Jesus. So as we've seen so far in the invitation, he calls us into something more. In the confrontation, he confronts our greatest enemy and then at last, we see in the restoration, he heals and restores us. He heals and restores us. Returning to the text at verse 40, we see here that a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. If you're up to date and well read on your Leviticus, which of course we all should be in the book of the Old Testament, uh, you should know that leprosy is, it discusses multiple and a variety of skin disorders. If one was found to be leprous, this individual would be isolated from the rest of the congregation. He was required to wear torn clothes over his face and shout, unclean, unclean, stay away from me. And as long as this disease remained, he was outside of the camp away from the people, quite literally an outcast from the community. So imagine for a moment, maybe you have leprosy or a dear friend or a loved one has it. Not only is there this existential fear that you might die, but there is this profound social and religious stigma around you. And so you can sense this desperation of this man when he comes to Jesus and he begs him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. We don't know this man's situation, but we can imagine behind him saying this, or the many others who may have said this around Jesus, he said, you can make me clean. He's also saying, if you do this, I can finally go home. I can see my kids, I can see my friends. People won't look at me like I'm something disgusting anymore, like I'm a bug under someone's shoe, like I'm less than human. We know what happens, the leper is healed, because it seems like at this point that's something Jesus does. But as we draw to a close, I wanna point out something to us. We remind ourselves of that question we asked at the beginning. Who is this king? What type of person is he? What makes him worth following? Might I draw your attention to the fact that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, God incarnate, could have with ease voiced the leprosy to go away. He could have spoken into existence just like he did with the demons. Mark, however, draws special attention to the fact that Jesus was, what? Moved with compassion and that he touched the man. Imagine the bystander here. This is, this is crazy. 
This is like March of 2020, choosing to go into the room of somebody sick with COVID and drinking from the same coffee mug as them. Really dangerous, not to mention breaking about 100 laws. By including this detail though, Mark wants us to see that Jesus was not troubled by the threat of disease or ceremonial uncleanliness. Jesus here not only shows his authority, again, over all that is unclean and destructive, but he places love and compassion over ritual regulation. And ultimately, instead of becoming defiled himself, Jesus brings purification and life to this man. This is a glimpse of what Mark's gospel will make clear time and time again throughout this description of this king, showing in this a, a microcosm of the core of Jesus's character. As the reformer John Calvin once noted about this passage, by his word alone, he might have healed the leper, but he applied at the same time the touch of his hand to express the feeling of compassion nor ought this to excite our wonder, since he chose to take upon himself our flesh, that he might cleanse us from our sins. Mark's gospel is beginning to make clear the whole point of Jesus's ministry in the New Testament at large, that rather than standing off from afar, God chooses to enter into our brokenness and live the sinless life that we could never live and to bear our burdens and iniquities and impurities that one day he will suffer outside of the camp. One day he will be outcast of outcasts on a hill outside of the hill of Jerusalem where he dies a sinner's death, the death that we deserve to die, bearing the weight, the curse of sin, the curse of brokenness of the world upon himself on that cross. He didn't do this just to prove that he could do a miracle. He didn't heal this man just to prove he could do a miracle, but he was moved with compassion to do so. He saw you and was moved to compassion to save you, to die for you. He did this to give his life as a ransom for many. He did this to express his love for you, for God shows his love for us in this, that what? Christ died for us in our, while we were still sinners. And if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all this is dependent on that little phrase in verse 40, if you will, you can make me clean. While the language of faith isn't used here, clearly the act, there's this act of confidence and trust in Jesus being placed by the man. And Jesus responds, promptly, immediately, two words in Greek, four in English. He says, I will be clean. As we've walked through these snapshot scenes tonight of Jesus' ministry, we've seen the authority in this king that he calls us into something more. He confronts our greatest enemy. He cleanses and restores us. That is someone I could follow. That is somebody that I could call king. At each point throughout invitation, confrontation and restoration, we've seen that when he calls, they follow. When he commands, they obey. When he wills, they are healed. As we close, I'll leave you with these same questions the king provokes from our passage. He calls, will you follow? Will you come after him? Come after more than this life may have to give you and submit to his authority and make disciples yourself. He commands, will you obey? Not just acknowledging who Jesus is as some impressive moral teacher, but seeing your sin and repenting and believing in the gospel. He wills, 
will you be healed? The beautiful reality in this, friends, is to be healed, it doesn't require the long, kingly journey. It doesn't require hard work to gain recognition from that king. The king is already reaching out to you. He is moved with compassion towards you. The kingdom of God is near. It simply is an act of faith, an act in trusting in his life, death, and resurrection that is sufficient to cover your sins. You may be saying, just as the leper was, if you will, Lord, you can make me clean. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for who you are as king. You are somebody so worth following. You have shown us in your character that you call us into something more. You call us into a beautiful calling of making disciples and being ultimately a disciple ourselves. You call us through confronting our greatest enemy, overthrowing them, making them look like fools, and ultimately you cleanse, heal, and restore us. We're so grateful for this. Lord, call our hearts ultimately to you. There may be someone in here who has hidden from this reality and who sees it clearly for the first time. Let them take that next step of boldness to love, trust, and put their faith in you, trusting that you do heal, you do cleanse, that you desire all to come to a knowledge of you. We love you. Pray this all in your son's name.